Welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension's IPM podcast for field crops, where we discuss different areas of pest management and what's going on both at the University of Minnesota and across the state. And I want to do a little bit of housekeeping first to start folks off. First, we do have pesticide training sessions coming up in January and into February, especially on the private side for growers. We will be having more information coming up through U of M Extension on that, and you should be getting some postcards if you have to register those as well. So just a heads up on that. And also, this is our last episode of 2021. We'll be wrapping this up and going into 2022. So we'll be starting off probably about in February again or so with new episodes as well. Today, we have Dr. Aaron Lorenz, soybean breeder. He's our associate professor at the Department of Agronomy at the University of Minnesota. Aaron, it's great to have you on. Do you want to give a brief introduction of your work that you've been doing before you came to the U of M and also what you've been doing here? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Anthony, for having me on today. Like you said, I'm at the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics here, and uh, my main position is focusing on the Soybean Breeding and Genetics Program. Before I arrived here, I did my graduate work in plant breeding. I have a master's in plant breeding from Iowa State University and a PhD in plant breeding and plant genetics from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I spent some time at uh, Cornell and the University of uh, Nebraska, where I, I did postdoctoral work and faculty work um, in the area of, of plant quantitative genetics, which is basically studying the inheritance of traits that have a complex inheritance or controlled by many genes in which interact with the environment. And then also trying to apply those concepts to apply plant improvement. So that's how I find myself here today in this role is I'm trying to use some of those concepts in that field and trying to make our uh, applied cultivar development program uh, better, more effective, and, and more efficient. So Dr. Lorenz, you were actually on my uh, PhD committee a few years ago, and that's certainly uh, where some of my connections with you have been over the years. And wanting to get a bit of an update on what's going on with soybean breeding in Minnesota, especially. That's a topic that you know, a lot of folks, we may wonder about what's going on, but we don't really see a lot of the details, especially if you're a farmer, you were buying your seed, but you'd maybe aren't knowing what's going on in the background or how do these genetics actually get into our soybeans, whether it's through industry or what the university is up to. So do you want to give a brief primer on basically how does soybean breeding actually work? What are we trying to do with it for traits we're looking at? And if someone has a specific trait, how are you getting that into lines that farmers are actually using? So, I mean, the, the foundation of any breeding program is going to be, I mean, making, making a cross. So we've identified two varieties that we find favorable for maybe some, some different reasons. Maybe one has a uh, really high yield and another has some specific defense package that we're interested in disease resistance or insect resistance, or maybe some sort of, some sort of quality in the seed. And so we just simply cross those, hybridize those varieties, cross those two varieties together, develop what we call breeding populations from those crosses by allowing the plants to self-pollinate over a number of generations. And so we get a lot of different offspring from that cross that are going to be variable for our trace of interest. At the most basic level, we basically test those things over a number of years, a number of generations. And we start off with very large numbers of progenies from these crosses, and we test them for the traits that we're interested in. And as we find individuals that, that have the traits we're interested in, we further uh, refine our selections, we narrow the population down. And as we do that, we increase the intensity of the testing. So we test, perhaps we use more disease assays, more quality assays, and most importantly, we test for yield and other agronomics across a larger number of locations and across the, uh, multiple years and larger, uh, what we call these field plots. And so we 
we test further and further, uh, and then ultimately we hopefully have enough data to identify that that new individual that originated from that that breeding cross that's going to have maybe both the yield and the defense or quality traits that that we desire. So we have a, a new variety that is is better than what we had before. So thinking about how you actually do these crosses, you think over to the corn side of things, it seems a little more obvious where you know the pollen we're readily seeing it. If folks have been working as detasselers when they were kids, they may know a little bit, seeing a little bit of experience with that. But over on the soybean end of it, people maybe don't see that so much. You know, it's a little bit of a challenge trying to do some of those crosses, isn't it? Those flowers are pretty small. So you want to describe a little bit about, you know, the challenges you might have with that or kind of what process do you go through to actually make sure that you can do those crosses correctly? Because I know during grad school for me, I made a few attempts at it. I wasn't very good at it. So obviously you must be a little better than most folks at uh, trying to do those crosses. Right. Yeah. Soybeans are hard, hard to cross, especially much, much harder than corn. Um, so soybeans as, as opposed to corn, which is naturally a cross pollinating species, soybeans are naturally highly self pollinating. And so most of the time the uh, soybean flower will actually self pollinate itself before the flower fully opens. And the soybean flowers are really, really small. And so what you have to do is if you want to cross pollinate uh, two plants from two different varieties with one another, you actually have to open up the flower bud before it, it fully expands itself naturally. And then pull out all the petals and pull out all the, the uh, stamens and uh, along with the anthers. And then, and then uh, gather some pollen from open flowers on the male plant, the plants you want to use as males take that pollen and apply it to the plants, the dissected flower bud that you've used now and identify as a female. So you basically will add pollen to that plant before the plant has a chance to, to pollinate itself. And it is, it is quite tedious because those plant, those flowers are, are really quite small and you have to go in there with uh, small little tweezers and uh, magnifying glasses on your eyes and all that kind of stuff and, and make it happen. And I would say that, you know, even with a skilled soybean pollinator, uh, we're on average only about 50, 50% or so successful making a, uh, what we call a successful cross-pollination attempt. And even a fraction of those successful pollination attempts that we make are inadvertent self-pollinations. And so we have to make many, many attempted uh, cross-pollinations in soybean uh, before we get a uh, true successful uh, cross-pollination attempt. But then the nice thing about soybean compared to something like corn, is that since the plants self-pollinate themselves, once we've made that cross, we can let the plants self-pollinate or self-fertilize themselves for multiple generations when we drive those genetically variable um, offspring or progenies that, that I mentioned from which we start to make the selections. What projects have you been working on with U of M soybean breeding in terms of either specific traits or timeline or progress of what you've been up to so far? Well, I've been here for about... Uh, I guess just over six years now. And so since the, the nature of our program, since we're a university program or a public program, our, the breadth of our projects and the diversity of things that we do is a little bit broader than perhaps maybe a private uh, seed company would be. And so really, I kind of sort of cluster our research activities and our educational activities around just sort of a few different nodes here. So we have the applied cultivar development part of the program. We have some projects in our program where we're looking at different breeding methods, basically how to use genomic data, DNA sequencing data, molecular markers, 
as well as drones and high throughput phenotyping and imaging and things like that, trying to use those methods to make our program as well as any other breeding program uh, in the world more effective and efficient at what they do. So that's the breeding methods part of our research. Uh, we also have a fair bit of research where we are working with researchers who have may have worked on a certain disease or a certain stress, maybe had, have identified a source of germplasm or a gene or something like that that could confer some sort of advantage to that stress. Uh, and we work with them to advance those, to basically integrate those genes into uh, what we call elite, elite varieties that have been adapted to, you know, say North American conditions. So we do a fair bit of that. And then on top of all that, we are a source of, of education for graduate students who want to obtain advanced degrees and, and go work in the private industry or the public industry or non-governmental sector uh, or what have you in that front. So we, we educate students uh, while we're doing all these activities at the same time. So on, I mean, there's lots of things um, I could mention, but on the applied variety development side or applied cultivar development side of things, we have projects ranging from, as you know, Anthony, developing new varieties with uh, pyramided forms of aphid resistance. Aphids still are a problem periodically here in Minnesota, and there's a dearth of available varieties out there that have robust aphid resistance or maybe have multiple genes that confer aphid resistance. And so we've been working on this for a number of years now. We have breeding populations where we're trying to introduce new forms of soybean cyst nematode resistance. I see that in your podcast list, you had Greg Tilka talking to you a number of months ago here. He probably talked to you about how that common source of 88788 uh, resistance has broken down over the decades. And you find more field populations of soybean cyst nematode that overcome that source of resistance. And there are other sources of resistance out there to soybean cyst nematode. And it just takes some work to get those uh, genes that confer that resistance into soybean varieties that are adapted and, and elite for producers' field. And so we're doing some of that work to try to, to bring those genes into elite germplasm and bring them up to speed so the next generation of farmers can have some SCN resistance that will help them overcome SCN resistance breakdown in the field. So that's something we're working on. We also have some quality, uh, seed quality traits that we're, we're working on. We have um, a high lake. Soybean varieties are coming from the program. So trying to make, there are some native genes that exist in the germplasm collection of soybean that actually dramatically increase the oleic uh, fatty acid content of the soybean, of the soybean oil. So you, normally the oleic fatty acid in soybean oil is about 25%. You put two genes on top of that, that confer high oleic acid. You can get that oleic acid up to about 80%. So it's a dramatic improvement. And it basically makes soybean oil look more like olive oil in terms of its fatty acid composition. And it has some really great advantages in terms of, of uh, longevity and storability of the oil, uh, how long it lasts basically in fryers and in applications. And so there's some, some end user benefits there and they can pay a premium for that kind of oil if, if we provide it to them. So we're doing some of that stuff as well as many other, other projects out there. So when we hear about U of M breeding programs, you know, a lot of people will think about, let's say the apple breeding program, you get into honey crisps and things like that, where there are notable varieties, people recognize them. Do people see U of M varieties of soybeans in their seed catalogs somewhere? Or how are those dispersed? And how does that interact with industry where they have their own seed catalogs? Are some of those varieties being integrated into private lines or can folks actually just buy U of M varieties somewhere of soybeans? So you can access our public varieties directly through um, Minnesota Crop Improvement. 
they have a foundation seed manager there named Roger Whipler, and he has a network of certified seed growers that grow some of our public varieties that have been released from the program. So these be conventional, non-traded soybean varieties that you know may may fit a certain producer's fields. Maybe it's for uh, some kind of a premium or or the option to to save on-farm seed for for reducing input costs. So you can directly access our varieties through that through that organization. The other ways in which our germplasm or our varieties basically could end up in farmers' fields would be licensing through companies. Sometimes companies are interested in accessing some of our varieties for crossing to their own material, um, or maybe a direct license for commercialization could happen as well. A lot of our uh, material that gets licensed is licensed for some sort of specialty purpose, such as the high oleic material that um, I mentioned. There are some entities that are interested in licensing uh, these these high oleic varieties that would basically be licensed and grown as sort of a vertically integrated kind of process where the, the grower would grow them and then sell them to a, a, a processor for creating the oil directly. So kind of on a contract basis. And then there's a fair bit of um, food type varieties that come from our program as well. So we actively develop varieties for natto production. We have black seeded soybean varieties for certain types of again, soy food applications well as soy milk and tofu types of varieties for, for soy food applications. And those kinds of varieties also would be licensed. Certain companies who have this uh, identity preserve mechanism uh, worked out and contract with farmers on a regular basis pay a premium for those types of varieties. So that is a, um, another way that our, that our varieties hit the marketplace. So that's a good overview of what you're doing for your breeding program there. And the focus of this podcast is integrated pest management and obviously genetics and what's going on in breeding programs can play into what tools we have for pest management. You mentioned soybean cyst nematode is a good example of that, where, you know, we're basically losing some of our ability to manage resistance of soybean cyst nematode. And you kind of mentioned a little bit too, where what we call resistance can be tricky sometimes because it's basically resistance to the resistant traits. I think you had a good way of trying to specify that when I had the same trouble sometimes too, where we want to make sure to say that basically they're overcoming the resistance somehow. So obviously that's happening. What can growers do right now while we're waiting for traits that might be coming out? And what's the timeline, do you think, for more tools being available for managing soybean cyst nematode through resistance? Is it a couple of years we might see a few more available or is it more of a know, 10 years down the line situation. So we need to manage what we have right now, especially. Well, I think for, I mean, coming from a soybean breeder, I think one of the main things you can do to try to keep those SCN populations down, even if you have seen some resistance breakdown in your field would be to rotate away from soybean for, for a number of years. And so that's, that's the, the first option to try to keep those, those SCN numbers down, reduce the rate of, of resistance breakdown that, that may be happening. Uh, but in terms of varieties that are out there, I mean, there's basically, uh, like I said, more than 95% or so of the commercial varieties do have this single source of resistance, the 8878 type of resistance. But there are a few peaking type varieties out there. Another peaking is another source of resistance that will give you some, some good resistance to those, those populations that have that have overcome 8878 type resistance. And so those peaking varieties are out there and there's some good ones out there as well. We have a couple in our program here. Um, we've had some good luck on developing some new varieties with peaking sources of resistance. There are some good ones from a number of the commercial companies that have really good yield. And so if you think that you're experiencing some sort of 
SEN pressure because of uh, resistance breakdown. You could try a Peking variety and see if your yields really do improve uh, quite quite well. And then so over the long term, you could maybe rotate your sources of resistance. There are tools out there available that would allow you to rotate the 88788 type of resistance with a Peking resistance in addition to rotating your crops to try to keep the SEN numbers at bay in your fields. In terms of you know really uh, elite, really good performing uh, varieties out there with a very novel source of SEN resistance. In terms of things in our own program, I'd say that those are probably between five and, and 10 years away. Unfortunately, it just takes a lot of breeding to try to breed out that yield drag that can come along. The typical variety development pipeline is going to be anywhere from about six to 10 years anyway, without dealing with that, dealing with that yield drag. So that's a little bit of a longer term endeavor, but it's a very important endeavor nevertheless. And there are the peaking varieties available out there already. In addition to the peaking types that are out there, there's also a source of resistance called uh, PI89772 that's marketed by a, a certain seed company that, that could provide some benefits too. So they're definitely out there. And I should point out that myself and uh, you know Senyu Chen, that the work actually went on in Senyu Chen's lab, Seth Maeve and Bruce Potter put together a small extension bulletin on basically verifying SCN resistance of commercial non-88 to 788 uh, varieties that are that are available. And so we've we got uh, some companies to volunteer their varieties and enter these varieties into their tests, and we published the uh, resistance results from those from those trials so that you know the, the grower or the consultant whoever can be assured that these varieties do have the resistance to the right SCN populations that they may be looking for. And that's a good example of IPM where we can't always use our pesticides. In this case, we lean heavily on our genetic resistance instead for SCN. So that's one of the mm -hmm. cases where we definitely want to make sure we're preserving our tools and basically getting new ones in the pipeline through our soybean breeding programs. Yep. Related to that, you mentioned soybean aphid earlier, and we kind of mentioned a little bit how that one's definitely a topic where I'm you know, always interested to hear what's going on with soybean aphid. What's the pipeline looking like for soybean aphid resistance genetics? Is it maybe a couple of years out too? Because I know for years we've had traits like RAG1 or RAG2, but those were hard to find on the market. In some cases, some companies don't carry those at all anymore either. So it's hopefully a case where we'll see more on the market eventually, but I'm curious what your perspective is on that. What you might have available in the coming years that people might be able to use. Yeah, we have an existing RAG1 variety that it's already available. Um, it's about a 0 0.8 relative maturity. We have some advanced lines that have RAG2 that have looked pretty promising in regional testing. And we have uh, purified a small quantity of purified seed. And so we are in the process of further examining our 2021 data and trying to determine, you know, how rapidly we, we multiply those seeds and we need to contact some potential commercial partners and see if there's any interest out there in those, in those RAG2 varieties. And then we have a number of either two, three, or four gene stacks that are currently in our second year of yield testing. And, you know, just the way testing works in soybean breeding, we need to at least another year of testing. There's really no amount of technology that can get you around that need to test varieties for multiple years. So, you know, 
you really have to test for three, four years at many locations before you can be confident enough to release something that's a new variety. And so, like I said, we just finished year two testing on these multiple gene stacks that are there. And so I anticipate at least another year of field testing before we can be confident to, to really charge ahead. But they're, they're in there. If any of these multiple gene stack uh, varieties work out, we'll, we'll hopefully have something within the next, within the next uh, three, four, five years, I suppose. So they have RAG1, RAG2, RAG3, and, and RAG4, which should give you really good durable resistance to. Yeah, that's good to hear. I can definitely attest to how well some of these varieties, not necessarily the ones that you're working on, but just the, these resistance traits, how well they can work, where you'll still see a few aphids on there. But if you have a susceptible plot next to a resistant one, it can be a night and day difference sometimes where you'll be over threshold, maybe 300 aphids per plant on susceptible plants. And you go over to the resistant ones and you might find 20 aphids on a plant somewhere in that ballpark sometimes. Obviously that can vary, but yeah, it's, it's impressive seeing those sometimes just side by side. Yeah. As you, as you well know, I mean, the, in terms of the insecticides have, have been relatively inexpensive and effective for quite a long time now. And so that has not created the incentive for seed companies to rapidly develop these varieties. And then, and then on top of the fact that there's a lot of variation in biotypes and soybean aphids out there. And so if you have a single a single gene resistance, you can easily come across a population of, of uh, soybean aphids that can overcome that source of resistance. And then it's a real challenge to get pyramided forms of resistance. It takes a lot of breeding, a lot of crossing, a lot of testing to get a lot of molecular marker assays performed on a lot of different progenies to make sure you get all those genes together. And so it's, 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 it, it's a challenge. And if it's not incentivized because of available insecticides that are out there that are effective and inexpensive, just there just hasn't been a big need and desire for those varieties. I think the situation is is changing with the discovery of more aphid populations that are overcoming some of these uh, insect resistance. There's more regulation on a lot of these insects, and there's more concern about how these insecticides are affecting pollinator populations. So we may we may be in for a different, a totally different scenario here within a, a few years. So as an entomologist, I always have to remind myself not just to focus on the insects. So obviously in this case, you deal with diseases a lot too in soybean breeding. So what's going on in the program on priorities for diseases, at least any new diseases that have been coming in or old ones that have been a primary focus for you? So in terms of pests, um, definitely SCN is, is, number one one, is, is the number one pest. So we, we have our mind definitely on that and aphids. Other diseases... Uh, the one that, that we screen for regularly is going to be Phytophthora root rot uh, is an important one. So we always make sure that, that whatever varieties we're releasing has, have a good RPS or resistance to Phytophthora soji uh, gene in them. You know, we try to go for 3A, 1C, 6 uh, are, are good genes for, for that disease. In terms of other diseases we kind of have on our radar, I mean, soybeans is fortunate that there aren't um, a huge number of diseases that, that dramatically impact soybean on a regular basis, but there are a few that, that we screen for. Um, we'd like to screen for more and do something more about it if we could. And those would include uh, white mold is always an issue, especially in some parts of the state. And uh, commercial varieties uh, do provide a white mold resistance rating that you would get in a, get in a seed catalog. We are embarking on some collaborations with some new faculty in the Department of Plant Pathology 
on the weight mold. Uh, so we're excited about that going forward, doing some routine screening and, and looking at some uh, disease resistance mechanisms and, and things like that, other, other canopy-related traits that could affect white mold resistance. And so that's, that's all to come in our program. We haven't done a lot of screening for white mold uh, recently because it's a hard disease to screen for. I mean, you have to get infection in the field, which can be challenging. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. There are greenhouse, greenhouse assays that can be used for white mold, but those are not always predictive of what happens in the field. And then on top of that, white mold is what we call a complex trait. So it doesn't, doesn't seem like there's a single gene that will give you white mold resistance. Rather, there's going to be lots and lots of small effect genes combined with the canopy architecture and things like that and the soybean variety. So it's a, it's a hard disease to, to deal with. But um, it's something that we look forward to screening more and doing more in the future with some colleagues in plant pathology. On top of that, we've been doing some things with um, brown stem rot, just some regular screenings. Screened a little bit for sudden death syndrome in the past, but we haven't been doing too much of that, too much of that recently. So, all right. As we wrap up, is there anywhere people can go to learn more about what's going on in the soybean breeding program in terms of a website or anything like that? Myself, as you know, Anthony, myself and Seth Nave have, have started a soybean center, soybean research center at the University of Minnesota. And so uh, soybean research center does have a website now, even though it's, it's um, in, in its early phases and it can be developed more in the future. But um, we're, that's, the soybean research center will be a place that you can go to to learn more about soybean research in general at the University of Minnesota, in addition to what's going on in the, in the breeding program. Well, thank you, Dr. Lorenz, for visiting with us today. And I hope folks learned a bit about soybean breeding and just this broad overview of what goes into it and a few of our specifics on pest management, how that comes to us on our plates when we get the seed. There's a lot that goes on well before that. Yep. No problem. Glad to be here. And thank you, everyone, for listening through 2021 and all of our previous years. We'll see you again in 2022. And you've been listening to the University of Minnesota Extension's IPM podcast for field crops. Thank you.